Hello, this is Experience.Computer, an interview show about creativity, perception, and expression. I'm Jay Springett, and for most of my life, I believed that picture this was just a metaphor. That was until 2022 when I discovered something about myself. I have aphantasia, the inability to voluntarily create mental images in one's mind. In this episode, I lead author and podcaster J. David Osborne through a series of imaginative exercises. Then we discuss the sensation of visualizing numbers and mathematical operations, the feelings of the sacred, Chatat UX, the shape of stories, how his characters lead him around by the nose, and more. Let's begin. JDO, hello. Welcome to experience.computer. Hello. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you. For the benefit of the people on the internet that don't know who you are, could you please introduce yourself? My name is JD David Osborne. I live in Oklahoma with my wife and son. I'm an author. My most recent books are called Dying World and A War in Heaven, which are part of an ongoing cyberpunk series called God's Fair No Better. I'm also the co-host of the Agitator podcast with Kelby Losak, where we discuss the films of Takashi Miike and anime. And also, I am the co-host of the Lost Explorers podcast with Chris Sacknesson, where we talk about philosophy, the mind, and life in general. Thank you very much. Let's begin. Shut your eyes, and I'd like you to picture a ball on a table. Now the ball rolls off the table onto the floor. Okay, open your eyes. What color was the ball? It was a red ball. What type of table was it? It was wooden. Kind of a Ikea, a, a sort of sandy colored Ikea smooth table, like my kitchen table. Hmm. What was the floor? It was concrete. Concrete, mm -hmm. like a kind of uh, felt like it could have been an art gallery, uh, a state, a, a place that was staged to ha have a sort of exhibition being held there. So is that like polished concrete floor or a no more of a musty, dusty one? Yeah, yeah, sort of, uh, sort of dusty, sort of rough. There hasn't, it's not everything's not polished and smooth. It's definitely a a rough poured concrete. Is there any other details about the table? Is it, was it in a room? The table? Yeah. Yeah. So it's in a room. It's in a room. There was an overhead light. I could see the reflection of the overhead light in the ball. The table is in... My perception of it was more towards a side of the room. It wasn't in a corner, but it wasn't in the center of the room. Oh, and I also pictured the ball bouncing it once, twice, and then progressively mm. uh, more and more times. Which direction did it roll off the table? To the right. Would you say that every single sort of visual thought that you have has that level of fidelity? No. 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 Mm -mm. Every thought that I have some of the thoughts that I have are more vocal it's more voice oriented so I'm talking to myself in my brain other thoughts are feelings 
as a matter of fact, you having me do this exercise is interesting because it makes me realize how few times I, I do focus on the images in my head like that. When you read a book, do you see it like a movie? Do, do you have an idea of what things look like based on the description of the, I mean, you're a writer, so mm -hmm, I'm mm -hmm. interested in, in that. That's a really interesting question. And I suppose it depends on the book. There are flashes of images, but when I read, it's interesting because it's more about the the words themselves and the sequence on the page and the kind of music of how they come off the page. When I'm reading a book and there's an action scene, I often get lost. Sometimes I even get lost with action scenes in comic books or manga that I'm reading. But in terms of... Here's a good way of thinking about it. Say you're reading a book and the protagonist leaves his house and is walking to a kind of a, a store and it's a summer day. I'm actually, I'm not picturing the, th the third person, like a little Sims character doing that. I'm thinking of my perception of what it would be like to walk to a store on a summer hmm. day. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, I'm going to move on to some Apple questions. Okay. Can you picture an Apple? Absolutely. What does it look like? It's green. Green Apple. It's a green Granny Smith. Or a Granny Smith's green. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And if you hold it in your hand, can you feel the, the texture of the Apple? Yep. Absolutely. And if you look at it closely, I can see the bruises. So there's like a waxy surface or whatever as well, right? Like there's a waxy surface. I can feel on the underside of the apple. I can feel the rough bit at the bottom and I can feel the stem too. I can actually feel, and then how the tip of the stem is always a little bit bigger than the stem itself, like a little mm. knob can feel that too i can feel the sensation of rolling that thing of rolling the tip of an apple in between my thumb and finger mm -hmm. quite clearly mm -hmm. actually now that i'm thinking about it but That's i cool, can't right? imagine what it looks like yeah what about if you bite into the apple the sensation of biting in mm -hmm. yeah i can feel the skin peeling I can hear the sound. I don't hear the sound as well as I feel the sensation of biting into it, though. Into my two front teeth. I can feel bits of apple skin getting stuck between my teeth. But the bite, this is interesting. I've never focused on this before. But the bite sound is almost like a soundboard Foley artist rendition of biting into an apple. <laughs> yeah, like a like a hyper real crunch, the crunch, the the ultimate crunch, the ur crunch, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine what it tastes like? Can you bring that to mind? Mm -hmm. the, the taste of an apple. Mm -hmm. Yep, sweet, a little bit tart. Uh, in the in my mind, the apple is juicy even though I have had 
somewhat dry apples before, which is never any fun. Raggedy ass. <laughs> raggedy, raggedy ass apples. But yeah, no, whenever I cut an apple into pieces and you have the little the little boat, the little mm-hmm. apple boat, that's the best right there because you bite into the top and the the inside, the flesh is very soft. And then at the very end, that's when you get to the the skin and you get to tear the rest of it off. And you, you can just imagine that sensation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Can you, what about the taste of the apple? Oh yeah, I could definitely taste it. Yeah, I can taste the, uh, I can get the mouth feel. Of, wait, actually, hold on. I can't get the sensation of when it's mushed up in my mouth, which might be an indicator that I eat too fast. But I can definitely taste the, the sweetness. And what about smell the apple? It's quite a distinctive apple smell, isn't it? I can't smell it. <laughs> wow. Hold on, hold on. Let me think. This is going to this is going to bother me. I'm going to have a crisis on your show. Hold on. Let's see if I can smell <laughs> the apple. It's not a competition. Everyone's different. No, it is a competition for me. You don't understand how this <laughs> No, you know, I got to be honest. I can't I don't think I can smell the apple. That's crazy. Is there anything else that you can imagine the smell of just pick something and can you can you imagine the smell of it i can imagine the smell of oranges Mm -hmm. Uh, but no i think yeah i think that i my my imaginative sense of smell is not as clear as the visual touch taste uh, or maybe like hearing and smell might be the two lowest sensory imaginative faculties that I have. One of my favorite smells is when someone's just lit a Marlboro on a really cold, crisp autumn morning. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine what it smells like, but I know it when I smell it. It's a good smell. It's a good. My grandmother used to smoke, not Marlboros, but she would smoke. Uh, these cheap cigarettes called USAs. They just had the American flag on them and they cost. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) And yeah, I, I really, I grew up with the, with the smell of cigarette smoke and wind song perfume. So I've all always liked those things. And I, I smoked for years and years. So I think that cigarettes smoking. Can you bring any of those smells to mind that you mentioned? Wind song and cigarettes, actually, I can, but it's it goes very quickly back to images. I'll I'll get a hint of it. It's a is it a flash of of smell? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a flash, and then it very quickly goes into the memories associated with mm. the smell. What about back mm-hmm. to the apple again? Can you imagine holding it in your hand? Yes. What about throwing it up and down and catching it? Yep. Yeah, I can do that too. Is there the sound of an apple of of the apple like mm-hmm. smacking the palm? Yeah. And the, the weight and the, mm-hmm. the motion mm-hmm. of the, the apple moving is is it's all there. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I can imagine mm-hmm. Yeah, even the even the time. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the gravity, like gravity bringing it back down. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine throwing an apple up and down for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, I can, I can definitely do that, but I just can't picture it. <laughs> wow. Wow. Is there anything else that you can imagine the sort of tactile sensation of that comes to mind straight away? Touching tree bark or branches. I'm looking out my window right now and I see a chain link fence. I can imagine how the chain links feel, especially when they're really hot. Um, to move away from where I actually am, let's say I was going to... Oh, there's a smell. Going to the library. I can smell the mm -hmm. books in a library. Secondhand bookshop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The I can feel air conditioner when you walk in from the heat into the cold. Let's see, even though it's the dead of summer now, let's see if I can imagine the reverse being really cold. That one's not as strong because it's not as present, mm. I suppose. That's something that I've always thought was fascinating, was that whenever it's the dead of summer, you just wish that it was just a little bit colder and it doesn't matter, you know, we've had ice storms here and it's it's like, oh, I would take the ice storm over this heat any day. And then we're in the middle of an ice storm and branches are breaking all across the neighborhood. They sound like gunshots and you're like, oh my God, I don't care if it's 107 degrees outside, please, please just bring that back. <laughs> <laughs> what about things like pain, like burning yourself? Can you imagine what that feels like? No, I have a block. What about shutting your hand in the door? I can picture it. I can feel the pressure of the back of my fingers against the door jam. But the actual feeling is a it's a less intense sensation even than the the quick flashes of of smells mm. just a sensation of of a sharp emotional reaction or is it it's not no it's not an emotional reaction it's uh in fact it feels sort of it feels cold it feels distant it feels, ah, here's a good way of putting it. When your hand falls asleep, completely dead, no pins and needles, just a floppy arm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever just like taken the opportunity because your senses are dulled to, <laughs> to mess with yourself. <laughs> but if you've ever just like- you know, Dead hand gang. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, pinched, pinched your fingers or something like that. It's, it's more like that. Mm. but a flash and then it's correct more of a visual memory mm -hmm. what about you grew up in a haunted army base right can you picture that that building and the the place where you grew up yes 
Yes, I can picture living in the being in the military or being a military family. You move around a lot. There are certain houses that I remember less well, others that I remember very well. I remember we had one house that had a backyard that was full of these little burrs that would grow on the grass that would stick to your socks. Those were no fun. I remember, yeah, I I can walk through the layout of the house that we lived in for the longest period of time, most definitely. I can walk through that layout and the house before it. Um, And then I can remember... I can remember the layout of the the base itself pretty well too. Military bases are very strange places. They're def- they're not even liminal spaces. They're worlds unto their own. There's been mm. I don't know if you've been keeping up with some of the crazy things that have been happening at Fort Bragg where US soldiers have been uh being found decapitated like once a month and people have been locked in trunks and there's something wild in the past year, something like 21 soldiers have been found murdered, some of them pretty heinously. But I say all that to say that there's a there's an energy to military bases. It's very strange. So I can feel that energy very powerfully. And I can feel the energy of the, the houses that I lived in and all the things, both good and bad, that were going on in them. Mm. Would you say that you've ever had an experience of the sacred or the holy in the same way as we're talking about throwing an an apple up and catching it, that realm of experience? Or a better question is where is the experience of the holy or the sacred located experientially? I remember, so the first... The most profound things that come to mind are almost all from childhood, and they all have to do with churches. I remember the a church that I went to when I was very young, and all that I recall is a quiet hallway with you know, very lush carpeting and feeling a profound presence of something being there, not in a spooky way, not in a, mm. oh, it's haunted. Another time was when I lived in Germany because dad was stationed there for three years. We used to very frequently visit a town called Eder Oberstein, which had the, a church built into a cliff face. Uh, someone, the legend is that there was a, a guy who killed his brother over a girl, threw him off this cliff. And as penance, he sort of hand carved this church out of the rock. And I remember very specifically uh, whenever I would go into there uh, and I would see this very old organic church, I felt a very profound presence of something very, very real there. There are, I can't necessarily call to mind, although I know that I experienced them on psychedelics, but I can't call back those feelings, which I think I think sort of comes along with the territory with psychedelics. Yeah. You're not so you're not supposed to bring that back with you. Um, 
And then uh, the most recent time was act was the the birth of my kid. That was definitely a where you get transported into a different dimension. You're you're not mm-hmm. on this planet anymore. As far as was the location question, did I answer that or is it location in the in the mind? Yeah, I guess the further question is, can you bring or recall or bring to mind the sensation of those experiences that you had, what it felt like? Yep. You can. Yep. Yep. And you know what's interesting is that the feelings feel very close to profound like nostalgia. Hmm. But it's not nostalgia exactly. It's uh it's uh welling up in the chest of emotion, mm. I think. As you attempt to recall or re-experience mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. experience. I, right. I closed my eyes for a second and went back and found that feeling and went towards it a little bit, and I could feel my chest start to swell up and my throat constrict a little bit <laughs> so yeah yeah it's tied it's definitely tied to a physical sensation for me mm. and speaking of being in your body mm-hmm. where do you locate yourself in the day-to-day in the head in the head mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so if you're lying down going to sleep at night everything's dark, your eyes are shut, you're still located. Let's say that you're actually beyond your head in that sense, but like you're located what from the, the torso up and above your head in, in, is it like a sphere or? A sphere is a good way of putting it or, uh, uh, ripples of a frequency that goes around this area. That's the, that's the experience of dipping into dreams. It's, it's inner and then outward. It's kind of a, I feel like you could make a trippy psychedelic shape out of it that would blow people's minds at raves or what have you. But, (laughs) but yes, it's all up. I definitely don't have any uh, indication of who I am sort of below my waistline. Although recently, because I just got over COVID and I had a lot of aches, at that point I was very well aware of my size and my, you know, I'm not sure if I necessarily located myself there. It felt like uh, a sort of dis- like distant nagging, perhaps. But I was certainly aware of my legs the past few days. <laughs> more than in your day-to-day mm-hmm. going about your business. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I, we've talked about this before, and I, when I moved in after however many years of meditation, I, I actually felt like that, that location of awareness moved down. And I would say that I'm, I kind of think, think of myself just at the bottom of my, Rib cage, you know the the, the squishy gristle in the mm. middle of your, in your rib cage, yeah, the diaphragm. 
I would locate myself there, but it kind of extends above my head slightly, like even on the day to day, but also I'm at, I'm at the end of my fingers and at the bottom of my toes. And I stub my toes a lot since <laughs> this has happened <laughs> in the last three years, I've gone from being someone that used to stub their toes as a teenager and then stopped like as a, as a regular occurrence. And then after, after I moved into my torso, I guess I started bumping my toes again. And I sometimes feel it's like the universe going, ah, 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 you're, yeah. you're down there. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Right. Like that's so interesting. What, what happens with your, your, your thoughts still happen in your head? I found myself thoughts arising from somatic or emotional experiences mm -hmm. a lot more mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the same way as that kind of happens when you meditate. Mm -hmm. um, or during the process of meditation, but just more and more in my day-to-day -day life, like things will arise, thoughts arise rather than, I don't know, it's not like a, dropping a marble into a bowl and having a thought, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. like in mm -hmm. your head, it's more of a, 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 a blossoming or a, a flowering. That's great. That's really great because I'm going to have to get on your level because I feel like my head is a revolving door of strange Lovecraftian creatures. Not always. Sometimes they're pretty cool, but it's a never ending how, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And maybe this might be a bit of a retro causal thing, or because I knew that I was coming on the show today. But as I was taking a shower, I, did stop thinking for a bit and actually just uh, sort of felt the water and thoughts did start to arise. So for example, instead of thinking about uh, making sure that my son had his medicine to make sure that his fever was down and making sure that I got breakfast ready and ran all my errands and blah, 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 blah. I began to think about uh, stick charts from the Marshall Islands, which has been my obsessive focus lately. And I started thinking about a beach and just sort of staining a piece of wood that I cut down from a tree and putting it into a cool shape. But that thought itself is closer to how you describe it in terms of it organically kind of coming, like blooming or blossoming. Uh, not even fully formed, but if you could just picture, you know, like you said, you know, a seed opening up and all of these imaginative leaves coming out of it. And were the thoughts that you were thinking visual? Yes. Were you on the beach? Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. The sand was, I could feel it too, though. I could feel the, the sand and the... Between your toes. Yeah, I could hear the the ocean and I could, I even had a bit of a backstory about who I was on the beach. Cause I wasn't me. I was, uh, you know, I was Marshallese and I was, you know, making this stick chart and trying to, uh, remember exactly, uh, which turn I was supposed to make at this particular part in my chart and, uh, finding myself a bit conflicted about how that might impact the aesthetics of the chart itself, <laughs> you know? And that all 
is in the process of the thought, but it's in an instant that it, you say it wells up as it fully formed and that you're just inside of it or what's happening. It, no, no. Yeah. It's a much more organic growth. It feels like ink blots, right? Like somebody dri dripping ink and it, you know, the, the blots beginning to kind of like the watercolors beginning to sort of dot, 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 dot. And then as they blossom out, they run into each other mm. and it becomes fully formed. I'll ask you about maths. All right. And if you could shut your eyes, mm -hmm. you have one thing and now you have two. Okay. Open your eyes again. What mm. happened? What happened when you went from one to two? It went from a black background with a green apple and then the second apple like popped into existence. And is that because we've been talking about apples before, do you think? I have to imagine that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> Got apples on the brain. Yeah. What happens if you have one thing and then that thing becomes two things? What happens then? It looks like a lava lamp, two bulbs from a lava lamp splitting apart into two apples. What about one divided into two? Well, it's an, should I think about something besides an apple? The apples will keep in mind again. You're going with apples. Are you cutting okay. it in half? <laughs> I am cutting it in half, but there's a, there's a knife involved. An actual knife comes out to cut the apple in half. Would you say that the knife is the, what's the word? It's not an integer, but you know, the, is the knife a representation of the divide symbol in some sense? Oh, that's a very interesting interpretation. I could see that. I could definitely see that. And it makes sense because I suppose when they were coming up with the symbols, whoever they are, whoever invented that, that slash, maybe that's what they were doing. They maybe they cut an apple or some other fruit in half and they thought, ah, division. And it's like, and the symbol for it is this, the, mm -hmm. the cut, which then makes me wonder what's up with the X with multiplying. Where does that come from? Or the plus? I'm sure they have histories, right? Yeah. Now I'm interested. I'm going to bring this back to Chris and be like, guess what? Guess what I learned? So something that he'd be interested in. Let's do one plus one okay. becoming two. What, okay. what happens? Am I picturing the plus sign? The operation of the oh, plus one, sign. one plus one becoming two. Yeah. I picture those as numbers on a page. It's just ha, number that's one, really interesting. one equals two. Yeah. So when I do that, they're not numbers. I would say that they're like, it's because I'm not picturing anything. I'm just experiencing one thing and then another thing. And then when you put those two things together, it becomes something else. I don't know. As a sensation. Can I, as a follow-up, are you good at math? Not at all. Okay. That's so interesting because I thought you were going to say that you were because I'm not at all. Mm. 
and and I've I flunked out of calculus two in college, and that's when I had to change my major to creative writing because I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna cut it with anything number oriented, and I remember talking to the professor about my tests, and this was an area I have slacked off in school. Don't get me wrong, but this was one where I thought. I'm going to get this. I'm going to understand calculus too. And I genuinely went to go take this quiz one day and I was ripping through it. I was like, I know this, I've got it, I've got it. And it came back and I had missed almost every problem on there. <laughs> and I'd never experienced something that I was so sure I had correct, that was so totally and completely wrong. And so, what I'm saying about that, and the reason why I thought you were going to say you're good at math, is that I assumed that there is just a different mode. There's a there's a something that that was not given to me at birth for this particular incarnation to to put all that together. So when you were doing calculus, you never experienced balancing an equation as anything other than a metaphor. Right. Yep. Symbolic, a, sim, a symbol, a, a set of, a set of symbolic rules that, uh, where there, it always felt like there was some missing middle step that I wasn't getting. I, I thought I was following something correctly and I was not. Do you think that that is some that you were missing? Cause I have never felt an equation balance, like felt an equation balance. Mm -hmm. Do you think that mm -hmm. that is some sort of I don't want to use the word math blindness, <laughs> but mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. the same ways that you can't Im bring to mind the smell of something, mm -hmm. you can't feel the sensation of an equation balancing. I think that is a really good way of putting it. And it makes me feel better about myself because I don't have to say that I'm bad at math anymore. I can say I have math blindness and that you have to respect it because it's how God made me. Do you think school would have been different? Mm. Had you known or had your teachers known? Oh, school would have been, school would have been different in that I wouldn't have felt like I was wasting time in algebra or algebra two. This is Oklahoma public schools, I will remind you, which are, I believe, 49th in the state. I think we were, we beat uh, Kentucky or something. But Woo! yeah, <laughs> we're almost number one at the bottom, just the other way. But, uh, but it would have been a different experience. But school in general was sort of, uh, you know, in Oklahoma, it's a football farm with a school attached to it. So it's kind of hard to say how much it would have changed anything. Because I remember as a, a tween, so my grandpa was a fluid dynamicist and worked on Concord and was very good at maths. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And I was rubbish at maths. And I always felt that he had a frustration when he would say, just balance the equation, I, I honestly knew that, that I was missing something. 
That reminds me of my uncle in West Virginia. I would go to Virginia and West Virginia every summer and I would go fishing with my uncle and I loved him very much. He was a complete, uh, if you had can, well, if you've ever seen pictures of, you know, the stereotypical hillbilly, that was that guy, but he loved to fish and shoot guns and all that kind of stuff. But he was a very physical person. He's the kind of person who can fix a car or who can, you know, tie knots on his fishing boat. And he would show me over and over again how knots are supposed to work. And I, it just never made any sense to me. I moved furniture for three years uh, when I was in college. And when you're moving furniture, you'd have to put everything onto the truck and you'd have to strap it in. And there's this particular knot that you'd have to do. And they would bring new guys on and my boss would show them the knot one time and they'd pretty much have it down. But it took me two months of practice to get this, this knot down. And the same kind of frustration would, would come out of my, my, my boss. He would, he'd be, why, why don't you get how to tie this knot? It's the simplest thing in the world. I don't recall ever having a problem tying my shoes, which is interesting, but uh, tying different knots and working on things physically or being with my uncle and having him work on his uh, midget. He had a little yellow midget and saying, you know, hand me uh, this type of wrench or this type of, it didn't matter how many times he would tell me, I would look at the toolbox and I would see a Tetsuo, the Iron Man massive, you know, <laughs> just <laughs> shiny, intimidating, uh, you know, metal. So that that's another bit of, I have a bit of uh, handyman blindness or, or ta- maybe tactile blindness as well. Interesting. You're listening to Experience.Computer with my guest, author, J. David Osborne. If you're enjoying this episode, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps out with the algorithm. Thanks. Now back to the show. So on this show is called experience.computer so we're going to talk about using computers all right do you prefer to use your phone or a desktop well you've come to me at a very interesting time in my life because i (laughs) normally the answer to that is certainly my phone um to the point that i have felt a bit addicted to my phone, but uh, recently I have been putting my phone down and explicitly using my desktop. The honest answer to your question as of right now is the phone. I would feel much more comfortable scrolling through my phone and reading articles on the phone. When you're scrolling on your phone, what's going on? Is it an infinite... Um travelator of content mm-hmm. or is it a blackboard that sort of goes round and round it's uh it's a never ending scroll you know it's the mm. it's a binge it's uh you know i'm on the feed i'm in a state of complete consumption it's a uh, 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 if you could imagine you know so it feels like a, a forever forever yes yeah it feels parallel forever. line you know, or it's a line mm-hmm. that goes on forever mm-hmm. that has stuff on it. When you click on a menu button, where does a menu come from? From inside the button. Inside the button. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And when you're talking or chatting in an app and you're typing into the box and you hit enter, what's happening? Are the words being sent somewhere like a tennis volley? <laughs> no, they're being slid like a, a bank teller with glass. They're being slid under to the bank teller. <laughs> wow. And presumably the other person is doing that on the other side. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. We're putting it into the dip and we're turning some. Well, no, there's no turning around. No, no, no. It's just straight under and then straight back. You know, we can't hear. It's completely soundproof. It's blacked out. It's just, we're just handing messages back and forth. Post-it notes. Post-it notes, yeah. yeah. See, I would describe our conversations that we have on Telegram as I'm typing something into, a, into the message box. And when I hit enter, I'm posting a post-it note or I'm pinning a note onto a board which is a, like, a, like a notice board that only you and I can see. Mm, that's interesting. And I'm leaving messages for you. Mm -hmm. I like that. Because our time zones are, are, are a bit different. So, you know, I'm leaving a right. message for JDO or whatever, you know. Right. When you sent me the message this morning, I woke up and saw it. And it was, you know, it was 2 a.m. my time. So it would have been 8 your time. And it's, you know, oh, when, when he wakes up, he'll see it. He'll, he'll cover yeah. around <laughs> a message yeah. from the future. Jay slid it like you received this note through the hole in the wall or through the, mm -hmm. you know, and I just, mm -hmm. and I, I see it as posting a note into a board, like a, yeah. a, a notice board or something. And am I, and am, am I walking into a room to see this? Is this a, a room that we share, but we can't see each other because we're, we're, we're un, unstuck in time. I think it's just, it's in software space or code space, as I call it. So like, it's just mm. conceptually, that's how I'm thinking about it. You know, like right. you're inside the, you know, there's three buttons that I have to get in the app. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Sometimes I would say I associate where stuff is coming from. Like when I hit a burger menu and the, and a menu slides out, I would say that that's actually coming from beyond the screen. It's always there, mm -hmm. it's not, but, mm -hmm. you know? Um, it's not behind the screen. It's kind of off to the left-hand side of the screen. But other times, depending on the animation, if I'm hitting a menu button, I'll feel like it's summoning. I'm summoning the menu, mm -hmm. you know, out of mm -hmm. the button. Or, yeah, I hit the I hit the button. A process happens in the software, and then you know, <laughs> the menu yeah. is summoned. Depends on the animation. Right. That makes me think of pop-ups, which are. Basically, you go to, you're trying to look at a piece of art in a gallery and someone just sort of comes into the frame of your vision <laughs> with, a, I don't know, an, an issue of the watchtower or something. It's like, hey, mm. by the way, um, or it's somebody who works for the museum and they're like, would you like to subscribe to this, this museum? No, I'm just going here the one time because I wanted to see the exhibit that you had and then I'm I'm gonna leave and they're like, Oh, okay, all right, cool, cool. And then you go to the next painting and they're like, So are you sure? Because we have free stuff that we could get. Do you like candy? We could we have free Snickers bars if you if you want to sign up for our uh, our mailing list. Sorry, there's only three more paintings remaining this month. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, and that's just a huge, it's the rock, you know? The rock is standing in front of the rest of the paintings, just shaking his head. No, no. <laughs> no more for you, bud. So as an author, what, what software do you use when you're writing? I have been using, for most of my life, Microsoft Word, but I've switched to Atticus.io. Uh, I paid. I got the paid version of it because of the the relative ease of their ebook templates. Right. But uh, it's a little buggy, but I enjoy it. I enjoy it because it's in my browser. I'm finding that I write a lot better in a browser, which I have to attribute to about 10 years of chronic Facebook abuse. I feel like I trained my brain to, to associate reward with typing into a box on a browser. And it's rendered Microsoft Word. At, I do all of my editing work in Microsoft Word. But to me, Word no longer has a, uh, a utility as a, as a creative template. That's an interesting thought, which I haven't thought about before. The window, as we call them, mm. is that actually, would you say that is the metaphor of what's going on inside inside the window and what you're seeing is now has an effect on where you can do creative work or not. Probably, probably so. I think, yeah. So the, the window, the window in terms of the different, the window being one window being Microsoft word, one window being, yeah. Uh, that, that makes it, I feel like the window itself is important insofar as it's attached to a reward mechanism and there's no uh there's no reward mechanism for microsoft word you just open it back up the next day and keep going and there's no reward mechanism in atticus either although you do get a cute little dog animation that tells you to keep going which sometimes kind of works like oh the little the little doggy wants me to keep you've gotten your uh, sixteen hundred words done today it's happy with me. When you're looking at the window, are you looking in or are you looking out? In. Mm. Mm hmm. Are you looking out when you look at these these programs? I haven't ever thought about it, but no, I'm looking in. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder what would happen if I was to change my frame of mind to believe that I'm because looking at you right now in the video, I'm looking out, looking out. Right. And I just wonder what it's like to look out at Twitter <laughs> or YouTube right. rather than looking in. Whoa. That's huge. And that might describe i haven't had a whole lot to say on twitter recently it uh began a little bit before covid and then once you get covid you and you have a you know a, a baby with covid uh you just kind of stop caring about everything it's <laughs> it you, you find it really hard to go on to twitter and find people upset about the same things that they were upset a week ago but just with a new twist right but the the looking out is the sensation I have when I look at Twitter after a two or three week break or 
this past week while I've had COVID, it feels like watching, uh, you know, sort of monkeys in a zoo, but that's more looking in. Uh, it's, but it it does feel like- Is it an alien or foreign feeling? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Alien or A lot of uh, COVID, by the way, feels very alien and foreign to me. Mm. It, it reminds me very much of some str- kind of strange, metallic, synthetic, Borg-like thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah. was talking to, just as a side, I won't go too off track with this, but I was talking to Chris about this, who's had malaria. And he said, that's interesting because malaria felt like the presence of a of a god. Right, this this thing that's been around for thousands and thousands of years and has infected millions of people, uh, versus this kind of I don't know new kid on the block that still has a cool shiny biker jacket on and you know looks like a uh, one of the kids from Akira or something. But but yes, the the feeling that I'm trying to describe when I'm less interested in Twitter is one of standing on the periphery and kind of looking out onto creation as i know it and finding myself uh, a bit disgusted with it whereas when i get into it the disgust is still there the disgust is key it's a feature not a bug but i'm it is a more in feeling right i'm i'm in mm. it i'm having uh arguments with people in my head because i believe that we should treat twitter or all code spaces as worlds and it's really interesting that, to think about whether you're inside it or whether you're looking in like a terrarium or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is how I feel when I think about, <clears throat> excuse me, TikTok or Snapchat or even Facebook now. Those all seem to me to be things that I'm definitely outside of looking. I have a, a blast shield between myself and those things. But Twitter yeah. Twitter has this this amazing this amazing ability still to, 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 to pull in to magnetites. Would you say you're a resident? Yes. Anyway, let's stop talking about Twitter because yes. it's awful. It is awful. Let's talk about writing and creating, given that we've just uh, d- discussed all of these various elements of experience and sensation. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you're in the middle of a writing project the how i'm going to finish getting to the end and does the work that you've had or the work that you've written before have a have a shape or a topology a geography of what happens in the narrative that you've written do, do you perceive a story that way? In terms of the same project, everything that's come before? No. Yeah. I mean, just in general then. Because <sighs> this may be me projecting how I experience writing okay. onto the way that you experience writing. When the things that have come before having an influence on where I'm at at that point? Do I see it as a kind of a, a, a landscape that I'm adding on to? Um, I'm repeating what you said just to make sure that I am on yeah. the right track. This is a very interesting question, Jay, because I 
No, I don't think so. Writing is very immediate for me. And it's, it feels more like, uh, it's always felt like stepping into a river and letting that kind of wash over and being almost ignorant of things that have come before. It's one of the reasons why in the things that I write, there has been yet to, I haven't yet written of, you know, a 500 page fantasy epic, although I'm, I'm trying right now, but it's difficult because I have a hard time conceiving of the stuff that's come before as a, as a landscape that I'm adding on to. Do you think that's why in your career thus far, you favored the short story novella length work? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because writing for me has to be what has to be an everyday occurrence for a project to get done. I can't miss a single day. And that's because I have to be plugging into that source in order to get that rush of language. I'm very, I'm a very language oriented writer rather than plot or even character. And when I'm writing something very short, I'd like to skip around to the parts that give me the biggest charge in order to maintain that, that feeling of inspiration and creative flow. Let's go into the use of the word charge. Mm. When you conceive of an idea, are there points out in the ether that need to be connected that are charged? Mm-hmm. And are they individual ideas? They're, they're individual ideas. The, the ideas themselves have to work. It, uh, they have to somehow interact with each other and uh, uh, subvert each other and change each other. And they usually work in threes. I don't normally have just one idea. I have an idea that needs a, a setup, a buildup, uh, wait, a setup, and then a punchline. So maybe two. Maybe it just has to always have a kind of punchline or a joke. Writing very often to me, because it has to entertain me, always has to be punchy and constantly turning it on itself and messing with itself and moving things around. So you're writing and you have, you have these ideas and is there some sort of movement happening? And by movement, I mean, is it 3d or is it a 2d sensation? Or you talked about a lava lamp before or whatever, mm. you know, and the way that the motion of the, of the, I don't know. I'm I'm clutching at straws to try and explain myself, but the clutching at straws, I'm right there with you because you've hit the part of the conversation that's the most difficult to talk about, which is when you're in the the flow, what it's like. The lava lamp is the closest one. It'll there'll be an idea. Say you have a, a character and uh, you know, you have the you're you've just written your first chapter and you need to know where they're gonna go next. And you kind of think about what's happened so far. And then uh, basically you enter into this state where things pop up, potential ideas pop up, 
and then you say, no, that's not it. And then another idea pops up and you say, no, that's not it. But this is all, again, that kind of uh, lava lamp, ink blot, uh, sort of fractaling ideas coming out of your head until finally you hit one. And the only way that I can describe it is that it just feels right. It just feels correct. Something happens and you think, and I learned over time to listen to that instead of um, worry too much about plot. Because sometimes I'd get an idea that felt correct. And I would think, well, my character wouldn't do that. There's no way that I could get them to do that. And a friend of mine, Jordan Harper, a uh, very good novelist in his own right, told me once that it's fiction and none of these characters are real. And you can make them do anything that you want to do because it's your book. But in many ways, uh, fidelity to realism or um, making sure that everything is chronologically correct, making sure that you don't have any quote unquote plot holes keeps you from writing the idea that is the necessary next plank in the bridge across the, the river. So bit of a tangent there but i think that i think that it's it's important to sort of just you basic you're essentially sitting there and meditating in your own way and you're chasing after a certain warm uh deep reddish orange colored feeling that it's the sensation of things clicking of uh, something sliding into place and once you find it that's the idea and then the trick after that is to stop thinking about it <laughs> and write it. And then something fascinating happens in the writing of it, which is that it begins to change. It went through the monkey brain and is coming out the monkey fingers, and now it's different. And now you have to turn a different sensor off, and that's just a sensor that says, uh, hey, this isn't as good as the feeling was when you came up with the idea. So writing uh, just a never ending series of disappointments that you have to ignore. <laughs> and when all of this is going on, is it going on inside the concept of the book or are you inside the maelstrom in some sense, looking for the idea to cling onto that's going to click? It's, it's inside the, the book, which is in the maelstrom, right? It, it definitely becomes a little, a little hut or an igloo maybe uh or perhaps igloo is the wrong term because that makes you think of the cold and for me it's a much more warm uh kind of explosion a river of fire I'm getting very black metal right now but it's it's separate from it and you're you're watching things kind of come by the window and present themselves <laughs> and then you're you're grabbing one and pulling it in and grabbing one and pulling it in outside is where you go when you no longer have anything, but well, actually I'll make a note of that as I, I don't want to derail too much, but uh, here we go. But yeah. Do you ever have those moments where creative idea comes to you? Mm-hmm. And you have to, you just have to write, you just have to, what's the word? 
Do you ever get those moments where an idea comes to you and you just have to act upon the influence of the idea? You have to sit down and write or create until the, from start to finish. If the idea comes along with a compelling first sentence, then yes, because the compelling first sentence is the grease to get everything going. I've had really powerful ideas before that are conceptual in nature that are, and I've had, I have writer friends who work in fantasy and sci-fi and they're really good at, we'll be at a bar and they'll tell me about a concept that they have. And it's a great concept. It's a killer concept, but all they have is the concept. And yet two years later, I'll see the book on shelves at Barnes and Noble because they were able to, to find that. And I've never asked them, but I wonder if they're, there's a difference between pursuing an, an idea or a concept or some big picture uh, canvas that you want to present to people uh, that's different from the way that I do it, where I need to find that immediate linguistic musicality that opens me up into the, into the art itself. So it doesn't arrive fully formed? No. No. It's, it's a, it's an, a flowering or an exploration then. It's a performance in many ways. Uh, huh. yeah, yeah. Performance is, is a major part of this. I have recently gotten five writers together, um, and we're all writing a book together and we'll meet on zoom and we will talk about the, what's happening in the characters and in the performance of that conversation of that brainstorming uh lines will start coming to me but writing itself often acts as a performance for me that's what i was mentioning earlier about when you go to sit down and write it and it doesn't look the way it looks in your head uh, that's where performance comes in because then you have to to start to think about it in terms of you know by the act of writing itself i i'm creating a third thing there's idea there is, uh, you know, there's sentence and then in the middle there's performance and that's what you actually do. And that's what I'm trying to get more in touch with. Do characters have a sense of agency beyond themselves or are you just the puppet master? They have an incredible sense of agency. And in my first two novels, that's why they have such strange and anticlimactic endings. Actually, my first, well, pretty much all my books now that I think about it, because I'm completely led around by the nose by my characters. And I, when I'm in the middle of a scene and, I, and the performance is really kicking and I'm in the flow, they're doing what they want to do. And I'm, I'm recording. I'm one of those corny people who says that. That's become something of a cliche or something you're not supposed to say like oh i just i'm just at the mercy of the spirits man that's how i perceive it and that's why the advice from my friend jordan was so good because i think he's more of a puppet master i think that he he makes the character he makes the dolls kiss right and for me i have to get a little bit tougher i'm a much more permissive parent when it comes to my my, my characters where it's like, oh, if you guys want to do, I've even had this uh, feeling about killing certain characters, right? A bit of like a bit of guilt. Like, why would I, 
why would I have brought you into this world just to to suffer? I went through a phase, and I remember I got really drunk once and posted this on Facebook, and everybody, all the responses were like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" But the the Facebook post was, uh, "Is it morally correct to create characters just to torture and kill them in books?" <laughs> but it was something that I was really wrestling with in a mm-hmm. kind of Grant Grant Morrison Invisibles, uh, you know, this is its own type of reality kind of way. And how do you know when you're done? What's interesting is it's definitely a feeling. And one of the issues that I have is that I often feel done once I get about halfway through. And I don't know what that says about my projects, but I feel uh, it's once I feel done. And that's why I'm trying to add a bit more discipline, a bit more of this conceptual uh, world building stuff to my own writing. Because if you're just following an idea, one idea to its terminus, and then that idea is done. That doesn't necessarily mean now that the plot's done or the characters are done, but I'm done. So then I become less of a parent and more of a daycare employee who's just sort of showing up and I don't care what you kids do, whatever, throw paint at each other, uh, watch TV. It's no big deal to me. So I'm trying now to balance, balance that out. But the feeling of being done is one of, it's not that you don't want to return to to writing but you don't want to return to writing that thing anymore not because you failed or anything like that but because you you did it there's a great song by Aesop Rock called No Regrets and it's about this woman who keeps to herself and works on her art and you know never really has any friends or gets married and then grows old and and dies but there's a there's a the first verse is about this uh, Lucy is her name about this little girl who's covering her entire uh, sidewalk with sidewalk chalk and she's drawing all these intricate things on it. And then one day she puts her chalk down after she's covered the sidewalk and somebody says to her, uh, so after all that work, you're just, you're just giving up. And she says, I'm not giving up. I'm I'm finished. And then she's just done. So it's a, it's a profound feeling of, of doneness. That is different. And I've experienced them both. I've experienced burnout from not being able to successfully render the idea uh, versus rendering it about as well as I'm going to be able to and being done. Although, unfortunately, you know, there's still about 50 pages of work left to be done to make it something that anybody's going to want to read. But you're also a professional editor. Mm. And how is that process different? The editing process is completely different from the writing process. It's very strange. I think that, unfortunately, right now, I'm a much better editor than I am a writer. And the initial assumption might be that those two cross over very well. But when you're writing, you are making the clay you're digging up the clay from riverbanks. And when you are editing, you're just helping to shape it. You're figuring out what the little things are that's wrong with it and then being able to fix it. I, When I'm editing, 
I can look at something immediately and know what's wrong with it. And this goes back to being a kid when I was 10 or 11 or 12, something around there. My dad, we had a home computer, a PC, and my dad would write sci-fi stories on his, on Microsoft Word and he would leave them up and I would go to the computer to play Doom or something. And I would see these stories and I would start reading it and I would think like, oh no, that's wrong. And I would start changing it. So I've had a knack for figuring that out. The thing is, is that, yeah, it's a completely different beast than, than writing. And I, another reason why, you know, I try to get through first drafts so fast is because after that, the editor brain kicks in and it's a completely different story. You're almost not writing anymore. You describe writing as being, you know, like the river that you have to get into. What's editing like? Ooh. I feel like editing is you're looking at a tapestry or threads, perhaps, that are running through the work. And you have to move or pluck threads. And this is the, the thread of the thing that you've written. The, the, there's 400 words that you can get rid of, you know, like that, that, that is tangential to the, the thread that is resonates most from beginning to end. I love the idea of the thread on a tapestry. That's great. Or a harp or anything or harp. really. It's like pulling a plucking mm -hmm. on a string of a guitar. And that's mm -hmm. the, that's mm -hmm. the note that runs through the, the piece. There's several, but that's the one, you know? Mm -hmm. There is also a music metaphor that would work for it if I'm doing copy editing, which is looking for sentence clarity rather than grammatical consistency in which I'm listening for the music of the words and moving them around so that they, they're they in an order that's that's pleasing when you read them. But in terms of plot structure and character development, it's much more of a it's almost like you are in foundation repair. I have a buddy who's a great writer. His name is Brian Allen Carr and he's in his business is foundation repair and he'll go in, he'll go into the crawl space underneath someone's house. And then he has to go back up to them and say, you know, your whole house is completely screwed right now. This, the, the foundation, this termites, everything's falling apart. And so what I'm doing is I'm listening to the author's voice and I'm, getting a sense of what they're trying to achieve through what they've written. And then I'm, I'm looking at the foundations that they've laid for those things. And I'm seeing what's missing. If you want to have a character, for example, who's a, who's a villain, uh, but the only thing that you've done for the entire stretch of the novel is make them the most evil mustache twirling villain that you've ever seen, it's not very effective because people become numb and desensitized to it. So a better foundation to that, obviously, is to have the character think that they're the good guy in their head and give them some positive characteristics to turn sure. them into a human. Um, so that's where the foundation repair bit comes in. If you want to have someone do something truly nasty to somebody else, um, is it worse to have someone who cuts you off in traffic be nasty to you or to have your best friend be nasty to you? Obviously, the latter is much worse. I've heard authors talk about characters being gears in a complicated watch or a clock. And as they spin through the plot, 
there's much larger gears moving that are turning the world of the story. Is that a sensation that you, that you identify with? I've never heard it put that way, but that's beautiful. That's exactly it. Yep. They're all tiny gears and those gears have to be nice and shiny and well-oiled because there is a larger mechanism that's moving with those whole things. And that's why often when someone will come to me with a manuscript and it will have just been rejected over and over and over again, and they can't figure out what's wrong. I have a, a skill for being able to go in and sometimes it's the tiniest thing. I'll come back to them and they'll, you know, uh, I'll be like, okay, I know this doesn't look like much. I know this looks like I'm just taking your money and then that I didn't do anything, but I promise you this book is beautiful, but here's where you messed up. You know, here, uh, you know, you stumbled a bit here at the beginning with these characters. So you start off on a, on a rocky, you know, it gets really good around page 20, but you need to fix this, this, and this. And then there are a few bits that don't quite ring true, maybe not for the characters, but for the overall, um, you know, endpoint, the place that the narrative wants to go. There's something, there's a friction happening there. And it's just this, you know, sometimes it can even be this one scene. It hinges on this one scene and you just have to lose it. You just take that scene out, basically. And I have a really good success rate with people coming back and saying, oh, the, the book was just really a lot better once I removed a character or, you know, um, you know, sometimes you just have to take some of the clutter out. Sometimes something needs more. You need a little bit mm. more at a certain place, but that's a, the, 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 the gears in a watch is a really good way of putting it. I'm gonna write that down actually. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you'd want to say? about writing and creating the sensation of doing it or well did we talk about the Pharrell thing off mic or on mic i can't remember off mic oh, off mic well you yeah you sent me uh, or you didn't send it to me no 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 let me start over i was going through your tumblr and i saw a link to a youtube video a talk between an epic an epic conversation between Pharrell and Rick Rubin about music and there's a bit where uh, they talk about how uh, really talented musicians can feel uh, the music. And I'm a big music fan. I know that music makes me feel great, but if I were to try to make music, there's just something missing. There's a bit of music blindness there where I can technically play a guitar, but not, you know, I can't write a song. And that sense of feeling I think was really important. And it's, been answering a lot of sort of questions in in my head, particularly as an editor, where um, you know I I attempt to help clients as much as I can, but there there do seem to be some writers who are able to to feel the this kind of flow, this uh, tapping into the maelstrom, and then others who even though everything else might be right, they might understand plot, character, they might have read all of the writing books that you're supposed to to read but they do, you can tell that they do, they don't feel it there's something missing to it and that's not uh congruent with the uh, or that that has nothing to do with passion and that's what's so crazy about it is that you can have people who do nothing but read books and who books are their entire life and yet they uh they have a lot of difficulty 
writing them. And then conversely, you have somebody like me who, who I, I probably don't read as much as those people. Uh, I should read more, uh, but who does, who does feel it. And then, uh, you know, is just uh, undisciplined and lazy and needs a lot of work in, in that respect. So that's, that's another just fleet, like random thought that I got from reading your, your Tumblr, which is what your Tumblr and your blog is good for. If I ever need to get my brain moving, I'll just say, you know, let's go over to the JMO. Thank you. uh, I I know I'll start thinking about something. (laughs) And where can people find you on the internet? Well, they can find me at brokenriverbooks.com. I am, I've restarted my Substack. Uh, but I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do with that. I might do monthly strand essays, which are what my my Death Stranding um, book, that's what I decided to call it, was a strand essay, which is essentially linked um, linked ideas that all sort of circle around a central theme. So kind of a cool, slightly ADD way of uh, of, of writing that appeals to me. I have a link tree to the podcast and the agitator podcast wicked thank you very much be well all right thank you yeah you too that was experience.computer with j david osborne in the next episode i'll be speaking with julia pot creator of the award-winning television show summer camp island on cartoon network this episode of experience.computer was created and produced by me jay springett intro music by paul tq freeman Outro music by Lawrence Steele. Find more episodes of the show at experience.computer and you can find more about me and my work at my blog, thejamo.net. Thanks for listening.